the, the body of Christ in Rochester is certainly a lot bigger than, than Grace Road Church. And, and I believe that what God wants to do in this community, he wants to do through all of his people and all of his churches. And so it's good to be part of a uh, community where there are so many churches that are faithful and pastors that are faithful. And I think it's good at times for, for the churches to cross-pollinate, to hear from the pastors at other churches, uh, to be strengthened and encouraged by those connections that we have. And uh, during the pandemic, I was able to, to develop a friendship with, uh, with Pastor Mark Mills. Uh, pastor Mark is the pastor of Glory to Glory Church in the 19th Ward. Why don't you come on up here? Um, he has been faithful there. I think one of the things that I've grown to appreciate over the years, um, as I've at least matured a little bit in the ministry, is early on, I was very impressed by, by the people who made the big waves and, and made the big flash with their ministry. And I've become more and more impressed with the people who are just faithful and steady and stick to it for a long time and shepherd a people. And so uh, Pastor Mark is a, a person like that. Uh, he's been faithful. He's been in this community for a long time, faithful to his family, faithful to his church, faithful to the Christian school where he teaches, loves the word of God, loves the Lord, and I know that he will bless us with the word today. Um, actually, the first place I ever met Pastor Mark, I was at a funeral that, that Pastor Mark was preaching, and it was the most God-exalting, sincere, deep, powerful sermon mess or funeral message I had ever heard. And so I'm so glad that, that Mark has become a friend, especially during the pandemic here, and I'm glad that he's here to bring the word. And so how about we pray for you, and then you could introduce your family and yourself and, and preach to us. So appreciate it. Great. Uh, Father, I just thank you so much for, for the mills and for their faithfulness. Thank you so much that, that, that Mark loves your word and loves his church and, and now is going to be bringing the word to, to feed us today. And we pray that by your spirit, you would feed us with your word. Help us to hear from you today. We pray that you'd encourage us, that you'd convict us, help us to, to turn to you. Help us to believe the gospel that's preached today. I pray that you would empower our brother to, to speak true words so that we might hear them and take them to heart. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Uh, incredibly kind words from your pastor. I, uh, and I appreciate the applause. But my goal is always, you know, that uh, you don't start off with an applause and then run out of the building with them throwing tomatoes at you because, you know, said something crazy up there. Uh, but I am blessed to have this morning with me my wife, Teresa, and uh, our, one of our daughters, Marquita. We have a son and four daughters. We have five grandchildren, and, uh, and hopefully that number keeps going up. We're uh, just thoroughly blessed. And uh, we've been at Glory to Glory, started off in our living room uh, on Thorndale Terrace over in the 19th Ward, uh, 2004, as a Bible study. And in 2005, it became a church, and uh, we find ourselves today in an old Catholic church that's owned by a charter school, uh, just gathering to worship and study God's Word. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, uh, if you would open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, I don't know what your typical approach on a Sunday morning is, but I'm going to ask that as I read, we're going to cover the first three verses. I'm going to ask that as I read the text, if we would all stand before God's word this morning. You know, I often think, and, and maybe this is more for me than it is for you, but you know, when you see someone walk into, when they're in a courtroom and the judge is about to enter the room, they say, all rise. And everyone stands, but they do so because they're recognizing this individual has authority to command, authority to judge. And when I come before the word of God, I always want to remind myself 
that the living God has authority over my life and that he has the authority to command. He has authority to judge. He has the authority to shape the way I look at the world in which I live. And so for me, there's that sense of reverence for the word of God. And so it's just a, a, a peculiar thing in my own heart. So I appreciate uh, your cooperation in that. So I'll read the first three verses and then we'll, we'll pray. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our God and Father, we come to your word this morning, Lord. We recognize that as creatures, we come with a desperate need that the Holy Spirit, who has inspired the text, would speak through the text into our lives. Father, that that same Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, Father, to be instructed in the pages of Scripture, to be encouraged and challenged, Father, to experience the washing of the water of your word. And Lord, we come to the Scriptures with, with that same humility, longing, Father, for you to reign over our lives by your word. Lord, Speak to us those things that are needful for our souls, that we would walk with you and worship you, that we would delight ourselves in the Lord our God, and that you would be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. You know, as, as a pastor, I am absolutely convinced that there is no grander subject that could occupy the minds or the tongues of men and the glory of God's Christ. I think it would be woefully insufficient to say, as we often say of people, that Jesus is the stuff of legends. He's more than that. He is much more than that. He is not simply the stuff of legends. He is the stuff of songs, songs that are suitable for the throne room of the living God, songs that are suitable for eternity. John, when he writes in the Revelation to us in chapter 5 and verse 9. He says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you were ransomed. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Down in verse 13, he says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. When you think of Christ, 
You have to think of one who is matchless in his person, one who is transcendent in his glory. The Son of God is a subject that is inexhaustible. And it's to him, it's to him that you and I turn our gaze this morning as we open the pages of Scripture. You know, I find that in my own personal Bible reading, One of the most important questions I can ask as I walk through a text of Scripture is this simple question, what do you see? It's a question three times posed to Jeremiah, twice to Amos, twice to Zechariah. What do you see? Because I find that as believers, often we open our Bibles and many of us at times, we see different things. Maybe I open a text of Scripture and I see myself in the text, and that's okay because there is something to say to me in the text. Or maybe I open it and I see my cousin or my friend or one of my children or one of my grandchildren. Or maybe I open the Scripture and I see David or I see Moses. But ultimately, I have to come to the Scriptures and I have to see Jesus. I have to see the Son of God. And so my prayer is that our God in the richness of his his eternal grace would allow us like John in Revelation chapter 4. John says he looked up and there was a, a door standing open in heaven and he heard a voice saying, come up here. That the same God would allow us in the richness of his eternal grace to peer through that open door this morning. That we would be consumed with visions of God's Christ that our eyes would be filled, that our souls would ultimately be satisfied with him and in him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away your sins and takes away mine. I pray that that in our brief time this morning that God would in a very intimate way, in a sense, bring heaven down to us that we might behold the Lamb and fall more deeply in love with him. The one who has the name that is above every other name. When you come to the book of Hebrews, we have to just briefly, a little bit of context for this letter. It's a letter written to Jews who had professed faith in Christ in this early part of the church's existence. But we know from chapter 10, we won't read it for the sake of time, you can go and look at it later. We know from chapter 10 that these Jews, even as they came into the kingdom, it was with a lot of persecution and and trial. They were, some of them beaten, some of them were imprisoned. They, remarkably to me, the writer says they joyfully took the confiscating of their goods that their property was taken from them for giving their lives to Christ, and they took that joyfully. There were some who were imprisoned and so forth. But these were Christians who were facing very real fears in regards to their faith. Persecution was rising for these Jewish Christians, and on the horizon was the very real threat of martyrdom, of losing their lives if they continued to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them had already turned back into Judaism for self-preservation, perhaps in, to some degree out of discouragement. Some of them are looking at this whole Christian thing and saying, I, I just don't see any worldly advantage in continuing to follow this, this Jesus 
of Nazareth. They're being tempted to not only pull away from Christ in particular, but to recede and pull themselves away from the church in particular. That's why, that's the context in chapter 10, the verse we're also familiar with, where the writer says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Now, certainly that has broad implications for your life and for mine, but in the context here, he's not just saying, I know you guys, you're, you're a little tired on Sunday morning, or maybe you get a little lazy, maybe you're busy washing the car, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. No, no, no. He's writing to people who are faced with very real fears. Their lives could be on the line. And he's telling them that in spite of all of that, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Some of them perhaps have questions. Does God care? Does he care what we're going through? Does he even know what we're going through? Maybe some of them are even beginning to ask, and I always think this because of the context, not only can God protect us, but maybe some of them are beginning to say, why in the face of all of this adversity, why is God silent? Because the writer begins with a speaking God. I think he's answering an issue. But you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me in Mark's gospel in chapter 4 when he gives his account of Jesus in the ship with his disciples and, and they are uh, terrified because of this tremendous storm that has risen. But Jesus is asleep in the ship. And when they wake him up, they say to him, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? And maybe that's where some of these Hebrews are. They feel like, Lord, don't you even care? You don't seem to be saying anything. You don't seem to be addressing our very real fears. You're not protecting us from the difficulties that we're faced with. So how does the writer address those kinds of questions? Well, the answer for the writer in addressing those questions is that he will confront these frightened children in the faith with the majesty the supremacy and the finality of Christ. That's his answer. And for you and I this morning, it has to be that Christ's glorious person has powerful implications for how we live our lives in the here and now, in the today, in the real world, faced with maybe not the same kinds of threats as they were, but our own types of challenges and trials that come to us because we have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Everyday life and everyday fears. I just want you know, when I, when I look at Hebrews, I often, to me, the book of Hebrews is what I like to call in, intensely practical theology. It's practical in the sense that it's, it's swelling sometimes in its grammar and, and what it presents to us of Christ, but it's intensely practical. It's not meant simply for us to sit around and, and just think ethereal thoughts, but it's meant for us to bring it into the everyday experiences of life in a fallen world. All of these magnificent truths of the Son of God are intended to impact us on the day-to-day -day level of our human existence, to enable us to walk in a world such as this. 
the marvelous truths of God's matchless Christ. I love the song selections, by the way. They're given to support our lives in a fallen world. Because Christ, the truth is, Christ is the one who puts all of life into perspective. And Christ is the one who will will enable each of us in a world like this to live for the glory of God in the face of every opposition and difficulty. He begins, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We're going to go a little bit quickly through the first few phrases. I want to spend the bulk of our time on the second part of verse 2 and on verse 3. But isn't it interesting for a book that I think is fantastic? We're actually in the seventh chapter in Hebrews at our church. And I just find it so important for Christians to think about Christ and the present reality of where he is and what he's doing for his people. But for a letter so weighty, the writer gives us no lengthy introduction. He doesn't give us any personal greeting. It is as though, as one person once said, it is as though we are immediately brought into the throne room of a speaking God. Immediately, he brings us to the throne of this speaking God. A God who spoke in the past through the prophets. A God who speaks today through the person of his son. And it's this voice of the speaking God. It's his voice that confronts our souls and comforts us in seasons of despair and difficulty in a world such as ours. Look, the Bible, from beginning to end, presents to us a speaking God. Not like, please, don't get me wrong, there's a church by our house that has this God is still speaking sign up. I'm not talking about that kind of speaking. You know know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not talking about that stuff. Speaking, I had to throw that in there. You never know, right? Yeah. I don't want to be, you know. But a God who speaks through the creation. The psalmist in Psalm 19, and one of our science teachers there, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night brings forth knowledge. There is no voice nor language, or speech nor language, and their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the world. That God speaks to the world through the very creation that he has made. Yet the creation can't reveal to us what we ultimately need to know. That is only revealed to us in Christ. So he says, long ago at many times and in many ways, the idea is that the revelation of God was a gradual revelation, a revelation of his mind. It was given at many times. In other words, in in different portions of time, it was portioned out. It wasn't given all at once, but but it was given a little at a time from the beginning. I love to teach biblical theology. It's my favorite class to teach because of of just looking at the unfolding drama of redemption in the pages of Scripture. It's just a fascinating thing to me. It was given at many times, and he says in many ways, varied as to the methods that God would use to instruct mankind with regards to who he is and, and the way of salvation. But why is that so important to us? First of all, why would that be important to these Hebrews who are struggling 
And why should it be important to us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets? Why is that so important? It's important, dear ones, because it speaks to us of the determination of God to make his voice heard. The prophet Jeremiah, if you're using a King James it uses the same phrase 11 times, rising early. The ESV, I think, says um, persistently 10 times and then once urgently. But God is talking to Jeremiah about reaching out to his erring people. And God keeps saying to them, I spoke to them, rising early. God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. But what he's trying to get across to them is how determined he was to communicate to them in, in, their, in their real experiences of life. And so he uses this grammar that God is rising early to speak to his people or God is persistent in his language with regards to his people. I think of that. I think of how deceived a world we live in today. The God of this age has convinced people that if there is a God, he's disinterested in them. He's abandoned them to their lot in a fallen and lost world. He's departed the cosmos, kind of like the deists, just kind of checked out. Yet the scriptures paint us a very different picture. The Bible shows us a speaking God has employed various means to reach a lost world. He says in all of these times and ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets long ago. It's a reminder that the revelation of God is an ancient revelation. From the very days of Adam, God has been speaking concerning his salvation for the children of men. Hey, look, the heavens declare the glory of God. But here, it's not the trees, it's not the rocks, it's not going off into the woods and, and meditating on nature. But here, it's a revelation of God to mankind through mankind. All of it, again, proving this loving desire on God's part to be heard for the good of mankind. You know, when I read these beginning verses in Hebrews, I always think to myself, you know, because this is what the world would say. Well, if there is a God, he doesn't speak. He's silent. There's no... But, and I think to myself, what if God were silent? What if from the day Adam rebelled against him, God said not a word? You know what if? We would be without hope. This world would be completely hopeless with no point, no end in sight. All would be without hope if God didn't speak into man's existence. But he goes on, he says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. That the son of God is the full and final revelation of God to mankind. That the son of God is God's ultimate voice. That in Christ, we have God's last word to the human race. And understand it this way. A revelation, well, there can't be another word because his is the final word. It is a revelation that can't be surpassed, a revelation that can't even be rivaled by any other. By his son. 
It's the person of Christ holds within it all of the revelation that you and I need. John, the beloved apostle, when he begins to pen his gospel account, he, he gives us, I always love, verse 1, verse 14, verse 18. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. More literally, he has expounded the Father. That in the person of the Son, God the Father, whom none of us have ever seen, in the person of the Son, God is expounded. That Christ is the exposition of God, the full and final voice of an almighty God in a fallen world. And in Christ, we are given a matchless revelation of God, from God, and only in Christ. You won't find that revelation in Buddha. You won't find it in Muhammad. You won't find it in Confucius. That revelation is only given to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, the fall in Eden, when man separated himself through his sin from God, that fall was based on a lie. Adam believed this lie, or Eve particularly believed this lie that was told her that, that God was holding something back. God knows that in the day you eat, you will become as gods. God was withholding something good from man. There was a lie about God. And that led to the fall of man. Christ has come into this world to set the record straight. To tell us the truth about God. And he tells us that truth in remarkable ways. So we have a God who is a speaking God who has revealed his will, he's revealed his plan, all of that culminating in the person of Christ. Because again, without his speaking, all mankind would be left in complete ignorance. All the world would be in darkness. All the world would be hellbound. But God has spoken. He's spoken in his son and the message of God is a wonder to behold. That's why we call it the gospel good news. Because what God has spoken in the person of Christ is a word of redemption, a word of reconciliation, that God would be in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, that God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's a wonder, and it is good news. And the truth is, this Christ speaks to us in a voice that is far more eloquent than all of the universe gathered together. And this Christ, as he speaks into our lives through the pages of Scripture, informs all areas of our living. But the world has a lot of trouble. You don't have to tell you that. But the problem for the world is, in this world of trouble, 
men and women out there struggling. This is where, where you all come in and, and sharing the gospel because out there in a world of trouble, they are convinced that if there is a God, he is silent. He has nothing to say about all of this. But they won't hear the voice of God that resounds in his love from the cross, beckoning them, calling them into sweet fellowship with himself. In 1 John chapter 4, John puts it to us this way. He says in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul would put it this way in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we go on through this, what every blood-bought saint needs to do in the daily living of their life is to consider the one who undertakes for their souls. So we've looked to this point at the revelation that Christ brings. But from here down through verse 3, the writer wants us to see the glory that Christ bears. And I just want to say quickly, if you're here this morning, if you haven't given your life to Christ, maybe this is your first time here, maybe you've been coming for a while. And if you have, listen, I would beg of you, you need to hear the voice of God speaking through the person of his son, inviting you into the salvation that he has prepared. And I would plead with you this morning, today or next Sunday, grab your pastor or one of the other pastors or leader, grab them, look them in the eye and say, I need to see Jesus. Tell me about this Christ that my soul can be saved. That's the most important decision you will ever make. And for those of you who are Christians, look, you need to, just like I need, we have to see the practicality of the book of Hebrews. We have to consider, what does God say to people who are struggling? What does God offer to people who are in difficulty, who are maybe being persecuted for their faith or challenged? What does he say to those who are cast down? What does he say to those who might even be despairing of their lives? What would you say? What would you say to people who are mocked for their faith or, or beaten or tortured because they have faith in Christ? What would you say to people who've had their property confiscated because they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ? What would you say to those who live under the threat of death because they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ? All you can do, dear ones, is paint for them an exalted picture of their Savior and encourage them to lay hold of the Christ they behold. So what does he say of Christ? He says that he, in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is why the Son is the, the fullest and final revelation of God whom the Father appointed to be heir of all things. It's a natural progression. He is the Son, therefore, 
He is the heir. He is appointed by the Father to be heir of all things. But, obviously we're not going to look at this, a little later in the chapter, in verse 5, the writer is going to quote from Psalm 2. You are my son, today I've begotten you. In verse 8 of Psalm 2, it says, the Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for an inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for a possession. That's what the writer's alluding to because he's going to get into that in a moment. But Jesus himself, Matthew eleven twenty-seven, 27, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom he chooses to reveal him. The Son is the one whom the Father has appointed heir of all things. We have to think about that. All things. More than just this world. Christ is the heir of all things. Everything is made subject to him. That's important. Because if Christ is the heir of all things, if everything is made subject to to the Son, that means that for you and I to partake of any good, it has to be through Him because He is the heir of all things. Everything is given into His hands. Everything is made subject to Him. When I think of that, you know, Paul, when he's dictating his letter to to the Romans, he goes through just this incredibly in-depth picture of, of gospel salvation for those first 11 chapters. But as he gets to the end of the 11th chapter, I always envision, I don't know what Paul looked like, but I always envision this old guy, he's sitting maybe on a wooden bench dictating the letter to the Romans, and he gets to the end of all of this as he's, he's just thinking about gospel salvation. And it's as though he explodes in worship and he cries out, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has first given unto him that it should be recompensed to him again? And then Paul says this, for of him and through him and to him be all things. Amen. Everything. It's of him, it's through him, and it's all to him. All things. He adds, <coughs> excuse me, through whom also he created the world. So he is the heir of all things. But then the writer says, but he's also the creator. Again, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. But in verse 3, he says, and all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Christ isn't only the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And he's not only the center of God's saving work, but Christ is is the creator of all things as the agent of creation. That means he truly is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And don't miss the connection. Because here, he's the, he is the creator of all things. He's the one who created everything. And then down in verse 3, he is the redeemer. He is alpha. He is omega. He created and he recreates. And so the idea for us is 
that Christ has to be understood as central to all of human history. We don't just look at Christ from the manger onward, but Christ is the center of all human history because he created all things, and he is the one who recreates all things in himself. And, you know, just an aside, but I've always felt this way. Uh, one of our pastors is down at the uh, Creation Museum this weekend, and I always feel like, A failed doctrine of creation will inevitably lead to a failed doctrine of redemption. Because if I don't understand him as creator of all things, then how can I understand him as the redeemer? There there has to be a connection between those two things. But anyway, he says, through whom also he made the world, more literally the word the writer uses here could be translated, he made the ages. Not just what we confine it to, this planet, this globe that we stand upon. The idea of the word has to do with the fact that Christ created time and space and matter, that he created it all. Why does he want us to see that? Why do we need to see that this morning? Because it's designed to give us a very big view of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Paul writes, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what is this supposed to do? It's supposed to get me to go, you know, look out at the stars and he created Well, I could do that. But there's a point to this. It's as though the writer is saying, surely the Son of God, whom the Father has appointed to be heir of all things, through whom he created time and space and matter and all that exists, surely he can manage the difficulties of your life. Can't he? I mean, what is it that you're going through at work that he can't manage? He is heir of all things. He created all things. See, this is practical. It's not just, you know, it's, it's very practical. If this is who he is, then what in my life can't Christ manage? What difficulty that I face is Christ not the answer to? That's the point of that. Now in verse 3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Three things in verse 3. He shows us his person. He shows us Christ's power. And then he shows us Christ's place. It's it's brief to, to give us all of that information, but it is a profound picture of who he is, what he has done, and where he is, which is the consequence of both of those things. So he says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is his person, or who he is. Now I want you to think about this, because later in the text, in the verse, he's going to tell us what Christ did. But first he tells us who he is. And this is is just one of those things that always stirs in my heart. The person of Christ always precedes the work of Christ for our understanding. Who he is, 
than what he does. Again, John, as he lays out his gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, who he is. Verse three, and all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made what he has done, his work. I remember years ago reading through uh, John Owen's book, The Glory of Christ. I made the mistake of buying the original, uh, original English copies of it. So it took me three tries to get through that book. But it was a great book. <laughs> Tough reading, but it was a great book. But I do remember in it, he, he just, it just, I was it stuck in my tracks. Because he talked about the fact that David said, and I'm just giving you names, but say David or Aaron or Isaiah, that those men were in a sense elevated by the positions that God gave them. So David was in a sense elevated by being made king, Aaron by being made priest, Isaiah by being made a prophet. So the, the office added to the man, it, it elevated them. But he said, not so with Christ. Christ isn't elevated by becoming king, priest, and prophet. No, no, no. The, actually, the reverse is true. When Christ fills those offices with his person, those offices are now exalted to the highest place that they could possibly be. Because Christ has filled the office. His person is now filling that office and it exalts and elevates the office. For me, I think sometimes as, as modern day American Christians, we focus on the latter, on what he's done, and sometimes we brush past who he is. Sometimes we don't even address it at all. I think sometimes we see that in our evangelism. We focus in telling people what he did. But we don't really spend a lot of time explaining to them who it is that did it. And, and the danger in that, they may make a genuine profession of faith in Christ, but what happens when the storms rage on the sea? If they don't truly understand who it is that died upon that cross for them, when the storms begin to rage, they look to human assistance and, and all sorts of other things, and they're not confident that the Son of God, who is heir of all things through whom the Father created the world, can actually bring them through that situation. Sometimes we see it in our discipleship. We spend a lot of time telling people what he requires of them, rather than explaining who it is that requires it and the provision he makes for the accomplishment of it. So who is he? He says he is the radiance of the glory of God. We might say in the context here that in terms of his person, Christ is the radiator of God's glory. He radiates. He is the effulgence, the off-flash of the glory of God. Again, but why is that important for us to know? You see, what happened in Eden? When Adam rebelled against God, when he sinned, and he was banished from the garden, Adam's experience prior to that, he would hear the voice of the, of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day. He had an incredibly intimate relationship with God. But then he sinned. He was banished from the garden. Flaming sword is put there, so he can't make his way back to the tree of life. And man's experience with God in that garden before the fall, we don't even know what it was like, but, but that had been lost. And then you fast forward to the children of Israel. They're in the wilderness and they commit this heinous sin. They, they make a golden calf and they begin to worship it. And Moses intercedes for the people and all of that great picture of Christ there. But isn't it interesting? 
In chapter 33, I think it's verse 18, Moses asks one request of God. And on the heels of their sin, what's Moses' request? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And I would submit to you, God did that for Moses. That was just a shadow and a type. Because centuries later, as John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When the Apostle Paul speaks to us of salvation, this miracle, the only thing he can equate it to is the miracle of creation itself. So in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says this. He says, but God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shined into our hearts. Why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That the moment you came to Christ, there was, maybe unrecognized to us, but there was a revelation of the glory of God in the person of Christ, the, the one who is the radiator of God's glory to fallen man. Because if perhaps we understood our own souls and what their true need was, what we were crying out long before we finally came to the close of salvation with Christ was, God, show me your glory. God, I'm lost in this world. I don't know where I'm going and sin is destroying my life. Show me your glory. And he commands light to shine into our hearts. And he shows us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has shown us his glory. And look, and what are we waiting for? John 17, 24, Jesus says this. As he's praying to his father, Father, I will that they who have believed in me will be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. That's it. That's, all, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So he is the radiator of God's glory. He says in the exact imprint of his nature, he is the representer of God's person. As the Father is, so is the Son in very nature. That's why no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he expounds him. It's essential to what he did. Though he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Paul, writing to the Colossians, he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. It's remarkable. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is the representer of the person of God. You and I are created in the image of God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Think about that. We're created in God's image. Christ is the image of the invisible God or the exact imprint of his nature. And I would submit to you this morning that that is at the heart of what Satan is trying to hide from this world. Hold your plate, if you'd like. I know it'll be on the screen, right? But if you turn to 2 Corinthians with me, if you want, you can read it off the screen or follow me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
When Paul is talking about the gospel in verse 3, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what he's trying to hide from them. Not that he lived, that there was a man named Jesus that lived or that that he performed miracles or that he died, but that he is the image of the invisible God. He says next, his person, he says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. His power, his person and his power. That Christ is presently upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's not only the active agent in creation, but he is the active agent in sustaining and preserving the whole of the creation. So Christ is creator, Christ is sustainer of everything. He upholds the ideas he is presently upholding, that Christ brought everything into existence from nothing and he sustains everything so that it doesn't return to nothing. Paul says to the Colossians that in Christ all things consist or everything is held together. Now, just for my own thinking, the ESV says the universe. When I read that, this is the way my mind works. I read that he upholds the universe immediately. I think of the cosmos. I think of the planets and the stars and that Christ is holding all of that vastness to sustaining everything. Interestingly, the King James, because I read both my devotions, the King James says he upholds all things. Now, when I read all things, I don't think about the cosmos. You know what I think about? I think about every plant, every tree, every blade of grass, every molecule, not only the things I can see, but everything that exists. And for me, it's important to see both of those things because it reminds me that Christ upholds everything in the macro, in the big picture. He upholds the universe, but he also upholds everything in the micro. Every blade of grass, every life sustained by God's Christ. And again, what's the point of all of Well, the point is plain, that if he can do that, then he can uphold your life, and he can uphold my life. And I think we have to ask ourselves, is this the way we know him? You know, David, in his song of repentance, David was crying out, he needed something. In Psalm 51.10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. He uses the, the word Bara was the same word in Genesis 1 where God created something out of nothing, right? Everything out of nothing. And David isn't looking at himself and saying, I'm a pretty good guy. I just need a little help. He's saying, I'm bankrupt. Created me a clean heart, O God. But Christ creates all things. And so the scripture says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, or as Paul says to the Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so this Christ takes our nothingness and he creates a new person. That's why the invitation is so remarkable when he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? Because I'm coming to the creator and the sustainer of all things. Ezekiel 
36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Our sufficiency isn't found in us. It's found in the mighty son of the living God. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. And truth is, what need would we have for another voice than his voice? He is completely sufficient. Completely sufficient. So the writer presents this all-powerful Christ who has the power to create, the power to sustain, control, bring everything to proper conclusion. Is that the kind of Christ you set before the world? More importantly, maybe, when you're struggling, is this the kind of Christ you set before your soul? This all-sufficient Christ. He says after he had after making purification for sins, now he's moving into his place. First his power, his person, his power. After making purification for sins, he did that at the cross. By the offering of himself, he reconciles us to God. The Son of God purifying us from our sins through faith. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in that, it's answering God, what God said through Isaiah. God had said through Isaiah, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be wool. And I think any honest Hebrew would have said, but how? You know, I don't, we don't have time to, to elaborate, but before I got saved in 1992, I was a college dropout, and I was a heroin addict. And if you had said to me that God could make my sins whiter than snow, I would have said, how? You can't fix this. Because I was completely convinced, not only that I couldn't be fixed, but I couldn't be saved. I thought you had to get yourself fixed first, and then you could come to Christ. But what's God's answer? By the cross. I'll make your sins whiter than snow. That Christ will purify you from all of your sins and wash you clean. So the writer, he presents to us this Christ. First, he shows us Christ as this exalted picture, but then he says to us, it's this Christ who stooped down into the failure of your life and made purification for your sins. Lastly, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's so important. It's the consequence of his person and his work. The Son of God has completely discharged all of his duties, his offering has been made, redemption's accomplished. The Father is completely satisfied. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and he sat down. It's important because these are Hebrews. They know that priests in the temple never sat. There were no chairs. They never sat because their work was never done. One sacrifice couldn't complete it. They had to keep offering and offering and offering. Priest after priest, year after year, century after century, offerings had to be made because the work was never complete. But when your Christ went to the cross, when he offered his blood at that cross, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sat down because the work is done. Christ has provided redemption for your sin and redemption for your soul. And he sat at the right hand of his father. In John 19, 
So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And then Luke says, Luke 22, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Look, the majesty and the glory of God's Christ are, in a sense, inexpressible. The Father seated on his throne in full manifestation of his majesty and his glory. The Son of God seated at the Father's right hand. And I don't know about you, but for me, my mind is far too weak and limited to fully grasp the magnitude of that scene. But what I do know is this. The Son of God has been exalted to the highest place and he has all honor and power. And from there, this Son of God undertakes for my life and he undertakes for yours if you're in Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So I would just say to you, you are in Christ, spend your day considering the one who went to the cross for you. Spend your day considering the one who appears in the presence of God for you. There's no one higher, there's none more majestic, none more glorious. You know, Peter, I think last words are always important. The last words we have from Peter who had spent all that time with Jesus for his own failures and and successes, what is Peter's last word to us? 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that Christ has been exalted. God, we pray that every eye has seen him that every heart has been touched by him. God, that you would magnify his name, that you would glorify your son, that he would glorify you. Lord, receive our worship. Be glorified in our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.